Chapter Eighteen of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joel Peebles. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two, Paris and Prison, by Giacomo Casanova, translated by Arthur Machen. Episode Eight: Convent Affairs. Chapter Eighteen. Visit to the convent and conversation with M. M. A letter from her and my answer. Another interview at the Casino of Murin in the presence of her lover. According to my promise, I went to see M. M. two days afterwards, but as soon as she came to the parlor, she told me that her lover had said he was coming, and that she expected him every minute, and that she would be glad to see me the next day. I took leave of her, but near the bridge I saw a man, rather badly masked, coming out of a gondola. I looked at the gondolier, and I recognized him as being in the service of the French ambassador. It is he, I said to myself, and without appearing to observe him, I watched him enter the convent. I had no longer any doubt as to his identity, and I returned to Venice, delighted at having made the discovery, but I made up my mind not to say anything to my mistress. I saw her on the following day, and we had a long conversation together, which I am now going to relate. My friend, she said to me, came yesterday, in order to bid farewell to me until the Christmas holidays. He is going to Padua, but everything has been arranged so that we can sup at his casino whenever we wish. Why not in Venice? He has begged me not to go there during his absence. He is wise and prudent. I could not refuse his request. You are quite right. When shall we sup together? Next Sunday, if you like. If I like is not the right expression, for I always like. On Sunday, then, I will go to the casino towards nightfall and wait for you with a book. Have you told your friend that you were not very uncomfortable in my small palace? He knows all about it, but, dearest, he is afraid of one thing. He fears a certain fatal plumpness. On my life, I've never thought of that. But, my darling, do you not run the same risk with him? No, it is impossible. I understand you. Then we must be very prudent for the future. I believe that nine days before Christmas the mask is no longer allowed, and then I shall have to go to your casino by water, otherwise I might easily be recognized by the same spy who has already followed me once. Yes, that idea proves your prudence, and I can easily show you the place. I hope you will be able to come also during Lent, although we are told that at that time God wishes us to mortify our senses. Is it not strange that there is a time during which God wants us to amuse ourselves almost to frenzy, and another during which, in order to please Him, we must live in complete abstinence? What is there in common between a yearly observance and the Deity, and how can the action of the creature have any influence over the Creator, whom my reason cannot conceive otherwise than independent? It seems to me that if God had created man with the power of offending him, man would be right in doing everything that is forbidden to him, because the deficiencies of his organization would be the work of the Creator himself. How can we imagine God grieved during Lent? My beloved one, you reason beautifully, but will you tell me where you have managed, in a convent, to pass the Rubicon? Yes, my friend has given me some good books which I have read with deep attention and the light of truth has dispelled the darkness which blinded my eyes. I can assure you that, when I look in my own heart, I find myself more fortunate in having met with a person who has brought light to my mind than miserable at having taken the veil. 
for the greatest happiness must certainly consist in living and in dying peacefully, a happiness which can hardly be obtained by listening to all the idle talk with which the priests puzzle our brains. I am of your opinion, but I admire you, for it ought to be the work of more than a few months to bring light to a mind prejudiced as yours was. There is no doubt that I should have seen light much sooner if I had not labored under so many prejudices. There was in my mind a curtain dividing truth from error, and reason alone could draw it aside. But that poor reason, I have been taught to fear it, to repulse it, as if its bright flame would have devoured instead of enlightened me. The moment it was proved to me that a reasonable being ought to be guided only by his own inductions, I acknowledged the sway of reason, and the mist which hid truth from me was dispelled. The evidence of truth shone before my eyes, nonsensical trifles disappeared, and I have no fear of their resuming their influence over my mind, for every day it is getting stronger, and I may say that I only began to love God when my mind was disabused of priestly superstitions concerning Him. I congratulate you. You have been more fortunate than I, for you have made more progress in one year than I have made in ten. Then you did not begin by reading the writings of Lord Bolingbroke? Five or six months ago I was reading La Sagesse by Chiron, and somehow or other my confessor heard of it. When I went to him for confession he took upon himself to tell me to give up reading that book. I answered that my conscience did not reproach me and that I could not obey him. In that case, he replied, I will not give you absolution. That will not prevent me from taking the communion, I said. This made him angry, and in order to know what he ought to do, he applied to Bishop Diedo. His eminence came to see me, and told me that I ought to be guided by my confessor. I answered that we had mutual duties to perform, and that the mission of a priest in the confessional was to listen to me, to impose a reasonable penance, and to give me absolution, that he had not even the right of offering me any advice if I did not ask for it. I added that the confessor, being bound to avoid scandal, if he dared to refuse me the absolution, which of course he could do, I would all the same go to the altar with the other nuns. The bishop, seeing that he was at his wit's end, told the priest to abandon me to my conscience. But that was not satisfactory to me, and my lover obtained a brief from the Pope authorizing me to go to confession to any priest I like. All the sisters are jealous of the privilege, but I have availed myself of it only once for the sake of establishing a precedence and of strengthening the right by the fact, for it is not worth the trouble. I always confess to the same priest, and he has no difficulty in giving me absolution, for I only tell him what I like. And for the rest do you absolve yourself? I confess to God, who alone can know my thoughts and judge the degree of merit or of demerit to be attached to my actions." Our conversation showed me that my lovely friend was what is called a free thinker, but I was not astonished at it, because she felt a greater need of peace for her conscience than of gratification for her senses. On the Sunday after dinner I took a two-oared gondola and went round the island of Murren to reconnoitre the shore and to discover the small door through which my mistress escaped from the convent. I lost my trouble and my time, for I did not become acquainted with the shore till the octave of Christmas and with the small door six months afterwards. I shall mention the circumstance in its proper place. As soon as it was time, I repaired to the temple, and while I was waiting for the idol, I amused myself in examining the books of a small library in the boudoir. They were not numerous, 
they were well chosen and worthy of the place. I found there everything that has been written against religion, and all the works of the most voluptuous writers on pleasure, attractive books, the incendiary style of which compels the reader to seek the reality of the image they represent. Several folios, richly bound, contained nothing but erotic engravings. Their principal merit consisted much more in the beauty of the designs, in the finish of the work, than in the lubricity of the positions. I found amongst them the prints of the Portier de Chartreux, published in England, the engravings of Mercius, of Aloysia Sigea Tolitana, and others, all very beautifully done. A great many small pictures covered the walls of the boudoir, and they were all masterpieces in the same style as the engravings. I had spent an hour in examining all these works of art, the sight of which had excited me in the most irresistible manner when I saw my beautiful mistress enter the room, dressed as a nun. Her appearance was not likely to act as a sedative, and therefore, without losing any time in compliments, I said to her, "'You arrive most opportunely. All these erotic pictures have fired my imagination, and it is in your garb of a saint that you must administer the remedy that my love requires.' Let me put on another dress, darling. It will not take more than five minutes. Five minutes will complete my happiness, and then you can attend to your metamorphosis. But let me take off these woolen robes, which I dislike. No, I want you to receive the homage of my love in the same dress which you had on when you gave birth to it. She uttered in the humblest manner a fiat voluntas tua, accompanied by the most voluptuous smile, and sank on the sofa. For one instant we forgot all the world besides. After that delightful ecstasy I assisted her to undress, and a simple gown of Indian muslin soon metamorphosed my lovely nun into a beautiful nymph. After an excellent supper we agreed not to meet again till the first day of the octave. She gave me the key of the gate on the shore, and told me that a blue ribbon attached to the window over the door would point it out by day, so as to prevent my making a mistake at night. I made her very happy by telling her that I would come and reside in her casino until the return of her friend. During the ten days that I remained there, I saw her four times, and I convinced her that I lived only for her. During my stay in the casino, I amused myself in reading, in writing to C. C., but my love for her had become a calm affection. The lines which interested me most in her letters were those in which she mentioned her friend. She often blamed me for not having cultivated the acquaintance of M. M., and my answer was that I had not done so for fear of being known. I always insisted upon the necessity of discretion. I do not believe in the possibility of equal love being bestowed upon two persons at the same time, nor do I believe it possible to keep love to a high degree of intensity if you give it either too much food or none at all. That which maintained my passion for M. M. in a state of great vigor was that I could never possess her without running the risk of losing her. It is impossible, I said to her once, that some time or other one of the nuns should not want to speak to you when you are absent. No, she answered, that cannot happen, because there is nothing more religiously respected in a convent than the right of a nun to deny herself, even to the abbess. A fire is the only circumstance I have to fear, because in that case there would be general uproar and confusion, and it would not appear natural that a nun should remain quietly locked up in her cell in the midst of such danger. My escape would then be discovered. I have contrived to gain over the lay sister and the gardener, as well as another nun, 
and that miracle was performed by my cunning, assisted by my lover's gold. He answers for the fidelity of the cook and his wife who take care of the casino. He has likewise every confidence in the two gondoliers, although one of them is sure to be a spy of the state inquisitors. On Christmas Eve she announced the return of her lover, and she told him that on St. Stephen's Day she would go with him to the opera, and that they would afterwards spend the night together. I shall expect you, my beloved one, she added, on the last day of the year, and here is a letter which I beg you not to read till you get home. As I had to move in order to make room for her lover, I packed my things early in the morning, and bidding farewell to a place in which during ten days I had enjoyed so many delights, I returned to the Bragadin Palace, where I read the following letter. You have somewhat offended me, my own darling, by telling me, respecting the mystery which I am bound to keep on the subject of my lover, that, satisfied to possess my heart, you left me mistress of my mind. That division of the heart and of the mind appears to me a pure sophism, and if it does not strike you as such, you must admit that you do not love me wholly, for I cannot exist without mind, and you cannot cherish my heart if it does not agree with my mind. If your love cannot accept a different state of things, it does not excel in delicacy. However, as some circumstance might occur in which you might accuse me of not having acted towards you with all the sincerity that true love inspires, and that it has a right to demand, I have made up my mind to confide to you a secret which concerns my friend, although I am aware that he relies entirely upon my discretion. I shall certainly be guilty of a breach of confidence, but you will not love me less for it, because, compelled to choose between you two, and to deceive either one or the other, love has conquered friendship. Do not punish me for it, for it has not been done blindly, and you will, I trust, consider the reasons which have caused the scale to weigh down in your favor. When I found myself incapable of resisting my wish to know you, and to become intimate with you, I could not gratify that wish without taking my friend into my confidence, and I had no doubt of his compliance. He conceived a very favorable opinion of your character from your first letter, not only because you had chosen the parlor of the convent for our first interview, but also because you appointed his casino at Murin instead of your own. But he likewise begged of me to allow him to be present at our first meeting place, in a small closet, a true hiding place, from which one can see and hear everything without being suspected by those in the drawing-room. You have not yet seen that mysterious closet, but I will show it to you on the last day of the year. Tell me, dearest, whether I could refuse that singular request to the man who was showing me such compliant kindness. I consented, and it was natural for me not to let you know it. You are therefore aware now that my friend was a witness of all we did and said during the first night that we spent together, but do not let that annoy you, for you pleased him in everything, in your behavior towards me as well as in the witty sayings which you uttered to make me laugh. I was in great fear when the conversation turned upon him, lest you would say something which might hurt his self-love, but very fortunately he heard only the most flattering compliments. Such is, dearest love, the sincere confession of my treason. But as a wise lover you will forgive me, because it has not done you the slightest harm. My friend is extremely curious to ascertain who you are. But listen to me, that night you were natural and thoroughly amiable. Would you have been the same if you had known that there was a witness? 
It is not likely, and if I had acquainted you with the truth, you might have refused your consent, and perhaps you would have been right. Now that we know each other, and that you entertain no doubt, I trust, of my devoted love, I wish to ease my conscience and to venture all. Learn then, dearest, that on the last day of the year my friend will be at the casino, which he will leave only the next morning. You will not see him, but he will see us. As you are supposed not to know anything about it, you must feel that you will have to be natural in everything, otherwise he might guess that I have betrayed the secret. It is especially in your conversation that you must be careful. My friend possesses every virtue except the theological one called faith, and on that subject you can say anything you like. You will be at liberty to talk literature, travels, politics, anything you please, and you need not refrain from anecdotes. In fact, you are certain of his approbation. Now, dearest, I have only this to say. Do you feel disposed to allow yourself to be seen by another man while you are abandoning yourself to the sweet voluptuousness of your senses? That doubt causes all my anxiety, and I entreat from you an answer, yes or no. Do you understand how painful the doubt is for me? I expect not to close my eyes throughout the night, and I shall not rest until I have your decision. In case you should object to show your tenderness in the presence of a third person, I will take whatever determination love may suggest to me. But I hope you will consent, and even if you were not to perform the character of an ardent lover in a masterly manner, it would not be of any consequence. I will let my friend believe that your love has not reached its apogee. That letter certainly took me by surprise, but all things considered, thinking that my part was better than the one accepted by the lover, I laughed heartily at the proposal. I confess, however, that I should not have laughed if I had not known the nature of the individual who was to be the witness of my amorous exploits. Understanding all the anxiety of my friend and wishing to allay it, I immediately wrote to her the following lines. You wish me, heavenly creature, to answer you yes or no, and I, full of love for you, want my answer to reach you before noon, so that you may dine in perfect peace. I will spend the last night of the year with you, and I can assure you that the friend, to whom we will give a spectacle worthy of Paphos and Amethos, shall see or hear nothing likely to make him suppose that I am acquainted with his secret. You may be certain that I will play my part not as a novice but as a master. If it is man's duty to be always the slave of his reason, if, as long as he has control over himself, he ought not to act without taking it for his guide, I cannot understand why a man should be ashamed to show himself to a friend at the very moment that he is most favored by love and nature. Yet I confess that you would have been wrong if you had confided the secret to me the first time, and that most likely I should then have refused to grant you that mark of my compliance, not because I loved you less then than I do now, but there are such strange tastes in nature that I might have imagined that your lover's ruling taste was to enjoy the sight of an ardent and frantic couple in the midst of amorous connection, and in that case, conceiving an unfavorable opinion of you, vexation might have frozen the love you had just sent through my being. Now, however, the case is very different. I know all I possess in you, and from all you have told me of your lover, I am well disposed towards him and I believe him to be my friend. If a feeling of modesty does not deter you from showing yourself tender, loving, and full of amorous ardor with me in his presence, how could I be ashamed, when, on the contrary, I ought to feel proud of myself? 
I have no reason to blush at having made a conquest of you, or at showing myself in those moments during which I prove the liberality with which nature has bestowed upon me the shape and the strength which assure such immense enjoyment to me, besides the certainty that I can make the woman I love share it with me. I am aware that, owing to a feeling which is called natural, but which is perhaps only the result of civilization and the effect of the prejudices inherent in youth, most men object to any witness in those moments. But those who cannot give any good reasons for their repugnance must have in their nature something of the cat. At the same time they might have some excellent reasons, without their thinking themselves bound to give them, except to the woman, who is easily deceived. I excuse with all my heart those who know that they would only excite the pity of the witnesses, but we both have no fear of that sort. All you have told me of your friend proves that he will enjoy our pleasures, but do you know what will be the result of it? The intensity of our ardor will excite his own, and he will throw himself at my feet, begging and entreating me to give up to him the only object likely to calm his amorous excitement. What could I do in that case? Give you up? I could hardly refuse to do so with good grace, but I would go away, for I could not remain a quiet spectator. Farewell, my darling love, all will be well, I have no doubt. Prepare yourself for the athletic contest, and rely upon the fortunate being who adores you. I spent the six following days with my three worthy friends, and at the Ridotto, which at that time was opened on St. Stephen's Day. As I could not hold the cards there, the patricians alone having the privilege of holding the bank, I played morning and evening, and I constantly lost, for whoever punts must lose. But the loss of the four or five thousand sequins I possessed, far from cooling my love, seemed only to increase its ardor. At the end of the year 1774, the great council promulgated a law forbidding all games of chance, the first effect of which was to close the ridotto. This law was a real phenomenon, and when the votes were taken out of the urn, the senators looked at each other with stupefaction. They made the law unwittingly, for three-fourths of the voters objected to it, and yet three-fourths of the votes were in favor of it. People said that it was a miracle of St. Mark's, who had answered the prayers of Monsignor Flagini, then censor-in-chief, now cardinal, and one of the three state inquisitors. On the day appointed I was punctual at the place of rendezvous, and I had not to wait for my mistress. She was in the dressing-room, where she had time to attend to her toilet, and as soon as she heard me she came to me dressed with the greatest elegance. "'My friend is not yet at his post,' she said to me, "'but the moment he is there I will give you a wink. Where is the mysterious closet?' "'There it is. Look at the back of this sofa against the wall.' All those flowers in relief have a hole in the center which communicates with the closet behind that wall. There is a bed, a table, and everything necessary to a person who wants to spend the night in amusing himself by looking at what is going on in this room. I will skew it to you whenever you like. Was it arranged by your lover's orders? No, for he could not foresee that he would use it. I understand that he may find great pleasure in such a sight, but being unable to possess you at the very moment, nature will make you most necessary to him. What will he do? That is his business. Besides, he is at liberty to go away when he has had enough of it, or to sleep if he has a mind to, but if you play your part naturally, he will not feel any weariness. I will be most natural, but I must be more polite. No, no politeness, I beg, for if you are polite, good-bye to nature.' 
Where have you ever seen, I should like to know, two lovers, excited by all the fury of love, think of politeness? You are right, darling, but I must be more delicate. Very well, delicacy can do no harm, but no more than usual. Your letter greatly pleased me. You have treated the subject like a man of experience. I have already stated that my mistress was dressed most elegantly, but I ought to have added that it was the elegance of the graces, and that it did not in any way prevent ease and simplicity. I only wondered at her having used some paint for the face, but it rather pleased me because she had applied it according to the fashion of the ladies of Versailles. The charm of that style consists in the negligence with which the paint is applied. The rouge must not appear natural. It is used to please the eyes which see it in the marks of an intoxication heralding the most amorous fury. She told me that she had put some on her face to please her inquisitive friend, who was very fond of it. That taste, I said, proves him to be a Frenchman. As I was uttering these words, she made a sign to me. The friend was at his post, and now the play began. The more I look at you, beloved angel, the more I think you worthy of my adoration. But are you not certain that you do not worship a cruel divinity? Yes, and therefore I do not offer my sacrifices to appease you, but to excite you. You shall feel all through the night the ardor of my devotion. You will not find me insensible to your offerings. I would begin them at once, but I think that, in order to ensure their efficiency, we ought to have supper first. I have taken nothing today but a cup of chocolate and a salad of white of eggs dressed with oil from Lucca and Marseilles vinegar. But, dearest, it is folly. You must be ill. Yes, I am just now, but I shall be all right when I have distilled the whites of eggs one by one into your amorous soul. I did not think you required any such stimulants. Who could want any with you? But I have a rational fear, for if I happened to prime without being able to fire, I would blow my brains out. My dear Brownie, it would certainly be a misfortune, but there would be no occasion to be in despair on that account. You think that I would only have to prime again? Of course. While we were bantering in this edifying fashion, the table had been laid and we sat down to supper. She ate for two and I for four, our excellent appetite being excited by the delicate cheer. A sumptuous dessert was served in splendid silver gilt plate similar to the two candlesticks which held four wax candles each. Seeing that I admired them, she said, They are a present from my friend. It is a magnificent present. He has given you the snuffers likewise? No, it is a proof that your friend is a great nobleman. How so? Because great lords have no idea of snuffing the candle. Our candles have wicks which never require that operation. Good. Tell me who has taught you French. Old La Forest, I have been his pupil for six years. He has also taught me to write poetry, but you know a great many words which I never heard from him, such as a go-go, frustratoire, rete, dorlote. Who taught you these words? The good company in Paris, and women particularly. We made some punch and amused ourselves in eating oysters after the voluptuous fashion of lovers. We sucked them in, one by one, after placing them on the other's tongue. Voluptuous reader, try it, and tell me whether it is not the nectar of the gods. At last, joking was over, and I reminded her that we had to think of more substantial pleasures. Wait here, she said, I am going to change my dress. I shall be back in one minute. Left alone, and not knowing what to do, I looked in the drawers of her writing-table. 
I did not touch the letters, but finding a box full of certain preservative sheaths against the fatal and dreaded plumpness, I emptied it, and I placed in it the following lines instead of the stolen goods. Enfant de l'amitié, ministre de la peur, je suis l'amour, tremblez, respectez le valeur, et toi femme de Dieu, ne crains pas d'être mère, car si tout le devient, du ciel sera le père, si les dit s'appendant, que tu veux le baron parle, je suis tout près, je me ferai chartrer. My mistress soon returned dressed like a nymph, a gown of Indian muslin embroidered with gold lilies spewed to admiration the outline of her voluptuous form, and her fine lace cap was worthy of a queen. I threw myself at her feet, entreating her not to delay my happiness any longer. Control your ardor a few moments, she said. Here is the altar, and in a few minutes the victim will be in your arms. You will see, she added, going to her writing table, how far the delicacy and the kind attention of my friend can extend. She took the box and opened it, but instead of the pretty sheaths that she expected to see, she found my poetry. After reading it aloud, she called me a thief, and smothering me with kisses, she entreated me to give her back what I had stolen, but I pretended not to understand. She then read the lines again, considered for one moment, and under pretense of getting a better pen, she left the room, saying, I am going to pay you in your own coin. She came back after a few minutes and wrote the following six lines. Sans rien, ôté au plaisir amoureux, l'objet de ton larçon certe cambier nouveau, à l'abri du danger, mon âme satisfaite, savoure en serette parfaite, et si tu veux jouer avec sécurité, rends-moi mon doux ami, c'est don de l'amitié. After this I could not resist any longer, and I gave her back those objects so precious to a nun who wants to sacrifice on the altar of Venus. The clock striking twelve, I showed her the principal actor who was longing to perform, and she arranged the sofa, saying that the alcove being too cold we had better sleep on it, but the true reason was that to satisfy the curious lover it was necessary for us to be seen. Dear reader, a picture must have shades, and there is nothing, no matter how beautiful, in one point of view that does not require to be sometimes veiled if you look at it from a different one. In order to paint the diversified scene which took place between me and my lovely mistress until the dawn of day, I should have to use all the colors of Aretino's palette. I was ardent and full of vigor, but I had to deal with a strong partner, and in the morning, after the last exploit, we were positively worn out so much so that my charming nun felt some anxiety on my account. It is true that she had seen my blood spurt out and cover her bosom during my last offering, and as she did not suspect the true cause of that phenomenon, she turned pale with fright. I allayed her anxiety by a thousand follies which made her laugh heartily. I washed her splendid bosom with rose water so as to purify it from the blood by which it had been dyed for the first time. She expressed a fear that she had swallowed a few drops, but I told her that it was of no consequence, even if were the case. She resumed the costume of a nun, and entreating me to lie down and to write to her before returning to Venice, so as to let her know how I was, she left the casino. I had no difficulty in obeying her, for I was truly in great need of rest. I slept until evening. 
As soon as I awoke, I wrote to her that my health was excellent and that I felt quite inclined to begin our delightful contest all over again. I asked her to let me know how she was herself, and after I had dispatched my letter, I returned to Venice. End of chapter 18 Recording by Joelle Peebles